Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, it's Jay here. I'm a producer on Darts and Letters. Our theme this week goes right to the show's core. It's the politics of expertise. Gordon explains that far better than I ever could, so I'll leave that to him. That's coming up at the start of the episode in a few seconds. Before that, though, I just need to remind you we're starting our new season of Darts and Letters in September, so go find us in your podcast app and hit follow or subscribe. Okay, here's the show. This one's called Derailed, the Crisis of Forensic Expertise. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. Darts and Letters is a show for people who love ideas but hate snob culture. Each week, we talk to intellectuals. And this is kind of a subtext. We don't make it clear each and every episode. But I think we ask a kind of basic question. What is an intellectual? Well, the next two weeks are asking a different sort of question. They are asking, what is an expert? Now, these two things may sound similar, intellectual, expert. But I think there are some big differences, and those differences are extremely important. So let me try to define our terms. Here is my short theory of expertise. We have to start by redefining intellectual. I did this in the first episode, but let me reiterate. For me, it's kind of a squishy term, but I know them when I see them. Intellectuals are widely read, they're super curious, they synthesize ideas from all over the place, and they help us put the pieces together. In so doing, they make new things possible. But they're also kind of weird and wonky, sometimes infuriating, because at least the best ones, they usually run against the currents. They seem to stand outside of themselves and their culture because they ask interesting questions, hard questions, big questions, critical questions, but just as often, odd questions. Questions like, how do we know what we know? Noam Chomsky talks about this kind of thing. He talks about a, quote, willingness to be puzzled. A willingness to be puzzled about the things that seem obvious. The things you know, or at least the things you think you know. That, to me, is a core ideal of being a good intellectual. Now, what is an expert? Well, I'll illustrate through a caricature. You've certainly met this kind of person before. You know that person at the party who just won't stop talking your ear off? Maybe he tells you he's a marine biologist and he studies plankton. Did you know that plankton is derived from the Greek adjective planktos, meaning errant? Zooplankton are my favorite plankton. They feed on other plankton. I study aeroplankton. What do you think this those are? marine those biologist, are he keeps telling you these little plankton factoids, and first you're kind of interested and impressed. You're like, 
oh, this guy's pretty smart and Plankton are more interesting than I thought. But eventually this wears off on you. He won't stop and you can't get a word in edgewise. So your interest starts to waver and you just abruptly change the subject. But then you notice something funny. This Plankton expert. He doesn't have a single intelligent thing to say about anything else you care about and you start to wonder. Is this just an idiot who happens to be obsessed with Plankton? Yeah, it is. Because he brings the subject back to Plankton and tells you a bunch more stupid factoids, each more boring than the next. At this point, you've had enough. You just beeline for the bathroom to get away from him. This, to me, is an expert. It's an extreme example, obviously. Not all experts are single-minded dunces but I use the hyperbole to illustrate a point. What I am trying to say is these two ideals, the ideals of intellectualism and the ideals of expertise, they are quite different. Intellectuals can be experts in something, but experts aren't necessarily intellectuals. So, okay, you get it, but Gordon, why are you doing this odd think-PC game of academic semantics? Well, I'll tell you why. I think it's really important that our experts become intellectuals. Because if they're not, I think things get very dangerous. Because here's the thing I've noticed. The top experts, the people that are the most specialized, the most knowledgeable, often they have the narrowest of perspectives. And that makes them most likely to just go along with the powerful people who use and abuse them. Sometimes these experts are just too dim-witted to even notice what is going on, but often they just don't care to ask. All they know is they've got their special little domain of knowledge and that's what they care about. They like it, and they're sure of what they know because, well, it's kind of baked into their title. They are the expert. And that is why they are a bad party guest. But sometimes it is a whole lot worse. Because here's the thing you have to realize. Experts have enormous power over us. They have enormous power over how we manage our society, how we handle risk, how we build systems, who those systems serve, how they work, and how they break down. So the stakes here are extremely high. In fact, they are life and death especially when it comes to the kind of experts we're talking about today. Forensic experts. The experts of crime scenes. You know, fingerprints, blood splatter, ballistics, handwriting analysis, all that stuff you see on CSI. These experts? Turns out that a lot of their science is shit. We'll get more into that soon, but long story short, they believed they were right. They just weren't. At least, not always. And over the next two episodes, I think it will be clear why. They weren't asking the intellectual questions. Like, how do we know what we know? And should we be looking at this in a completely different way? At the end of the day, they just weren't willing to be puzzled. So now, the entire field of forensic science is in this total crisis. And they've been in that crisis since 2004. The story starts with Brandon Mayfield. Brandon is a guy who really believes in his country. 
He even serves as an officer in the U.S. Army. Then he meets Mona, an Egyptian. Shortly after that, he converts to Islam, and then he moves to the Portland area. Mona and Brandon start a law practice. At the time, Brandon notices that his fellow Muslims are being targeted, and this troubles him. He thinks the country is kind of losing its way. So he frames the Bill of Rights and he puts it up right behind his desk and he gets to work. He gets to work trying his best to defend those ideals. But it was a very difficult time. This was just after September 11th, uh, 2001. I uh, leased a very small office in a, it's like a, it's a strip mall, sort of a small strip mall area on the Portland West Slope area. We purchased a house, paying the mortgage, representing low income, cash strapped clients, and really just trying to make ends meet. And just immediately I was getting questions from uh, local Muslims, the imam at the local mosque, realizing I was an attorney and saying, hey, I've got other Muslims that are being questioned by the FBI and they're being targeted and they're giving them their business cards, they're harassing them at work, like, do you have any idea what they should do? It was alarming, but it seemed like it came with the territory of, you know, what followed after the September 11th attacks. But I wasn't a criminal defense attorney, so usually I would just say, I'm going to have to refer you to a federal public defender or criminal defense attorney. But I knew enough to, you know, to generally just say, if you have those type of questions from federal investigators, the the number one rule is just say no. On Thursday, March 11, 2004, there was explosions that, uh, you know, they they ripped through uh, three Madrid train stations during morning rush hour. I think it was morning rush hour traffic, killing 191 people and leaving close to 2,000 wounded. By 11 a.m., the Spanish uh, police had discovered a a white van uh, in a town where the bombs, bomb trains had passed through, containing seven detonators. And these detonators were in a blue plastic bag, which was found by the SMP, that's just an acronym for the Spanish National Police, who have at least three fingerprint impressions that in the forensic community they call latents, latent prints. And these latents appeared to have been placed naturally from the thumb, index, and middle finger of the suspect's right hand. So what did the Spanish police do with that bag? Uh, Treated it with a chemical that creates white lines from the trace amount of amino acids left by each person's fingers. And then they lifted it by a piece of adhesive tape, creating a potential admissible piece of evidence, a latent print. I hear about it. Uh, I was in the in the kitchen at the at the table, and Mona was there. And you know, we we heard about the uh, this Madrid, uh, Spain, train bombing, 
And, you know, they were saying the same thing. That so many people were killed, almost 200 killed and almost 2,000 were wounded. And I was just thinking, wow, this is, that, by the way, that even though they found those seven detonators, they also found a, an Arabic tape in the van. I don't know where, maybe it was in the radio still or something like a set player or something like that, a tape. And it had the Arabic on it. There was this speculation that it, it was probably Muslims, you know, who did this attack. There's also speculation that some other non-Muslim, you know, local, they were called ETA, you know, like Basque separatists were involved in this attack because they had done similar types of bombings before. So nobody knew. And so when I came home and heard this, I remember having a discussion with my wife saying something to the effect of, I don't know if it's Muslims or Basque separatists, but this is just unconscionable and there's no justification. That was my reaction. Just un, you know, unconscionable, really. Soon after the bombings, strange things start to happen around the house. Things that Brandon and his wife Mona just can't explain. Well, the first big one was in April of 2004, my wife Mona, she came home to find a bolt on the door that we left unlocked or bolted. And when it happened again the following week, we started to suspect that, you know, we were being uh, possibly followed and bugged. You know, if she said she didn't bolt the door and that wasn't usually her habit, right? Then it wasn't bolted. That meant somebody had bolted that door the first time. But there's always a possibility that maybe she was mistaken. That un, that very remote possibility. Basically, when it happened again the next week, she called me and said, hey, same thing happened. This bolt is bolted again, right? And at that point, I said, stop. Be very careful. Go inside. You know, see if you can see anything. And when they went inside, like my son, he has a he has a room that overlooks the driveway, and we had barely new carpets on that in that bedroom, and it has blinds you can kind of crack and open, and you could see where somebody had cracked the blinds at a height that was higher than him, higher than me. So you could tell somebody higher had looked out there. And not only that, you could see where Muslims, and there's a habit we don't wear shoes in the house, that somebody had wore shoes in the house. And at the same time, the computers uh, at our work began to crash. And there were signs that someone had been in our law office as well as our house. people following Brandon confront him right after the break. You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network, and all this summer we're playing some highlights from our archives. But like Jay said, we are coming back with regular weekly programming this September. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear that, why don't you subscribe to our podcast? Search Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or go to dartsandletters.ca. Okay, on with the show and back to Brandon Mayfield. When we left him, Brandon and his wife Mona started to realize that somebody was tracking them. Brandon figures, this can't be a burglar. It's got to be the authorities. Because this had been going on for a while, and it looked like a pretty big operation. 
Brandon found footprints in the home. Not only that, that they may have copied our hard drive. I'm not so tech savvy, but my son, who I think was 15 at the time, uh, I remember him telling me that it looked like somebody had taken my hard drive out, and when they put it back in, they, they screwed something up. I also noticed uh, cars that appeared to tell me and unmarked vehicles around the house. Like I remember seeing one with a, had a, uh, had like a military sticker, which kind of stood out because like I said, it's a small strip mall and never seen this car before. And I just thought it was kind of odd. You had this car with an older gentleman, you know, with a military sticker on it, uh, like from a local base there. So, but later the government confirmed that in our home and office, they had, indeed secretly inspected and photographed over 200 items and documents. It made images of our hard drives, both at uh, work and at, in our home. They even rummaged through our trash, bugged and surveilled our home, including like private conversations between myself and Mona, my wife, between you know parents and children. They took DNA swabs, hair samples, nail clippings, uh, even, even cigarette butts. I was arrested at, at my office. One morning, I was just there by myself, and I was uh, was working on a wrongful death case. And I remember I was just looking over that file, and I got a knock on the door. And they were <laughs> there was two men and a woman uh, dressed in black suits. And initially, I thought they were Mormons or Jehovah's Witness, you know, something like that. Like they were just soliciting. Like that's what they looked like, kind of. Uh, and I was just ready to tell them, you know, hi, thanks. I'm not interested. You know, see you. See you later. But that wasn't the case. Right away, they identified themselves as FBI agents and said that they wanted to talk to me. I didn't envision that I'm just opening the front door to my office and they're outside, like sort of in the lobby area. And they're telling me that, that they want to talk to me. And I'm saying, again, I'm just telling them roughly, you know, what I was telling others. Uh, I don't have anything to say. If you have any questions, you can put it to me in writing, you know, that kind of a thing. So I guess I wasn't that surprised that they were doing that because other Muslims were having the same experience around the same time. You know, they were being questioned. Maybe I was a little surprised that they were questioning me, an attorney. I wasn't super surprised that maybe they would try to plug me for some kind of an information, like just to get a free hit for something, but I had no idea why. Things turned, uh, you know, more aggressive, like r real quickly, and they just pushed their way in. They they actually literally physically tried to push their way into my office, and I was I was literally at that door trying to you know hold them back, like putting my hand out, saying, "Listen, you have no business being in this law office. I have personal confidential files right here," and I was pointing, you know, to like a, a file cabinet right there, you know, like basically you're not welcome. You know, this is confidential. No, you're not coming in. They proceeded to to handcuff me. They kind of made their their guns on their side, you know, visibly present, right? And uh, said they had a uh, a warrant for my arrest. You know, they're they're putting my the hands behind my back. They're handcuffing me, and they they put the material witness uh, warrant on the desk in front of me. So, you know, I was I was asking questions like who won't you know who authorized this arrest and they said you know judge jones did and i was like oh oh judge jones i i know who he is you know i know judge jones uh because i had a case in the federal 
district court at that particular time, not with Judge Jones, but with another federal judge. So I'd heard of him. I even sort of respected him, you know, at that point. Then I, I, I bent down and I <laughs> sort of was, I had to keep turning around with my, my ass kind of like by the, the desk, you know, with my hand handcuffed, turn each page. And then I would turn around and I would put my nose down in front of it, you know, read it, you know, and it's uncomfortable, but I'm thinking, you know, who gives a shit? It's like, you know, what you're doing is uncomfortable. And it wasn't just uncomfortable. Everything changed. Like it was not, it wasn't like this routine questioning. Like, I mean, my mind was racing. It was just like out of control. Like, how can this be happening? You know, how, how are they doing this? And so I'm looking, but I'm, I'm just, I've got like an adrenaline rush and I'm just not, you know, kind of hard to process. I'm trying to kind of slow my breathing and think, okay, what's going on? I'm looking, I'm looking at this warrant and it's saying things like I'm not, it's not registering like normally, like I would read something and I would register. I'm just getting bits and pieces of it. It's, you know, but I'm seeing things like detonators and blasting caps, you know, that they're looking for, like it, it lists things that they're looking for. And I'm just thinking, what the hell, why, what are they looking for blasting caps and detonators for, you know, like this is just crazy, right? But I don't think I asked specifically why. I just asked who authorized this. And I went to the bottom page and I saw his name on it, that he signed it. I felt sort of, almost felt sort of betrayed because I was like, why couldn't, why did he have to go through this process, you know, Judge Jones? They thought they had something, you know, suspicious about me. Why didn't he just, couldn't he call me in the office? Like, I'm an officer of the court. You know, why couldn't he call me up or, you know, bring me to his office? And before he authorized this warrant, which I thought must be completely ridiculous and unfounded but you know who knows why they did it but i know i didn't do anything wrong so all i could think of sort of like this sense of you know betrayal and just lead shock as you're racing through this this warrant and you're you're putting some of the pieces together do you see the word madrid i don't think i ever saw that that's what i'm trying to say is i never at that point i hadn't made a connection between uh, madrid bombing and it was only it was only later when they had taken me down to the uh, U.S. Marshals lockup in, in the jail cell, when you know my feet were shackled, I was in shackles and chains, and you know had the belly chains on, the full security measure, and then, then they threw me into a cell, and I was by myself, and that's where, and the only thing I had on me that they gave me was this, like uh, I don't remember if it was actually the warrant or the affidavit in support of the the warrant, but it was there that I saw that. Their allegation was that they had found my print on this blue bag that I had mentioned earlier, this blue bag of detonators. It was matched to that latent, that latent print number 17, to my fingerprint. My left index finger was a 100% like match to that, that latent. As if it, I wasn't already, you know, just shocked and crushed and deflated enough when I read that. I was like, okay. The only way I could, you know, make sense of that was that, you know, I was just being framed, like somebody had forged this latent print. Obviously, being arrested, putting in the full kind of belly cuffs like you described, it's serious. But when it dawns on you just how serious, it's not any crime that they're accusing you of. It's this, this big crime. What are the, the thoughts going through your mind? Yeah, I just I didn't feel like I would be be released anytime soon, you know, based on that uh, allegation of a 100% match. Yeah, uh, that was like strong circumstantial 
forensic evidence, even though I even though I knew it was true. I just realized things were not headed in the right direction when I when I read that. You know, it might have been different if they said it was a possible match and you know something like that. But to say it a hundred percent match, like it just felt like I almost felt like it was intentional. But it was trying to intentionally, uh, wrongfully arrest me. At the same time that I was being arrested, agents were speaking to my relatives in Kansas, relatives of uh, my wife. They were also in another state outside of Portland. So it was a big operation that was going on simultaneously. And they were also questioning my wife. So when they were questioning her, they told her to, you know, pick a room where you're going to have to stay while we ransack your house. And as they were doing that, the phone rang, and one of them was from my my mother. Hi, Mona. This is Haven Allen. You know, we've got like agents that are <laughs> trying to talk to us, right? She couldn't pick it up. She could just hear it, you know, because the answering machine goes off. And then she gets another phone call from. Guess who? Michael Isakoff, you know, from, uh, oh, I can't remember what news publication he was with, you know, at that time, like Newsweek. This is the exact same time that they're arresting me. How did Michael Isakoff, like a news, you know, reporter, how was he made privy to this arrest? As material witness uh, arrests are all supposed to be done secretly. You're not supposed to let anybody know. So how did Mike Isakoff know? And the only answer to that is they let him know. By that night, there was like dozens and dozens of like news feeds outside and uh, news reporters just storming the house, helicopters and you know police cars like in front of the house. You know, it was a very scary and uncomfortable situation for myself and you know my family. When they when they took me before the judge, <laughs> I just I remember him telling me. You know, he was just saying why we're here, and he was just going through the regular rigmarole, and uh, you're here on a material witness, you know, warrant, and they've arrested you, and there's there's some serious charges here or allegations, and they say you you know they've got this fingerprint match, you know, and I'm there in the courtroom in belly chains. I just remember saying, Your Honor, that's not my fingerprint. You know, I stopped and I thought about it and I said, and if it is, I have no idea how it got there. Because there was this remote possibility that somehow maybe I touched something like a bag or something like that, you know, and somehow it got into the hands of somebody, right? Or I was at somebody's house and I touched something, you know. Uh, Chris Schatz and Steve Wax, who are federal public defenders here in uh, Portland, he agreed to, to represent me. And I know at times they ask me that scenario, like, Brandon, is it possible you went to somebody's house to the bathroom and you maybe you reached for a towel and you accidentally, you know, grabbed, a, you know, a bag? Like at some other Muslim's house, you know? This was their thinking. So initially, I didn't know this until later, but even Steve Wax, uh, who was the head of the public defender's office, he wasn't even sure that I was, you know, I think he thought I was potentially guilty. Not guilty, but, you know, that, that was my fingerprint on that bag. I think he thought that, you know. Well, they were certain, 100% match, right? How were they certain? Well, fingerprint matches are made on the basis of what's known as points of comparison. There's a quick, you know, look at your thumb or index finger. And what you'll see are 
friction ridges. And those ridges, they whirl and they split, creating unique patterns that ultimately become the biometric data that every burglar loves to hate. And comparing prints is a matter of looking for places where the ridges join or split, you know, something that can be paired between different prints. And they use these points of comparison to exclude prints, that is to prove that they're not the same, to match prints. But part of the problem is when you give your fingerprints for whatever reason, they're gonna, they're gonna ink you and then you're gonna get a full print of all of your fingers, your thumb. But when somebody leaves an impression, they usually don't leave a full impression. Usually they just get a partial print. And sometimes it's done on a, uh, like it's a not, it's not a, a perfectly level substrate, you know, like a bag in this is. And so usually when they make these comparisons, they, they're almost always working on a, a partial print, not even a, a full print. When they sent that latent print to Quantico, they asked Spain for access to the original. Their response was, it wasn't clear if they had one or not. It wasn't clear if anyone at the FBI followed up on a request. In other words, they asked for it, but I don't think anybody you know, gave them a copy of the original. Uh, the affidavit supporting my arrest states that, here's what it said. The affidavit supporting my arrest states that senior FBI examiner Terry Green found a potential match to my fingerprint cards, including my time in the Army. The cards were compared to the print found in Madrid and had in excess of 15 points of identification. Supervisory FBI fingerprint specialist Michael Wieners and fingerprint examiner John Massey, a retired FBI examiner with 30 years of experience, verified the identification. I have been advised that the FBI lab stands by their conclusion of a 100% positive identification. And what did you think that your chances were to get out of this, you know, after reading that, that 100%? I just thought there could be, there's a chance that this is just a big mistake. But um, as the days, you know, I was locked up for, you know, almost two weeks. You know, the, the more time went on, the more I started feeling like uh, I wasn't going to, I wasn't likely going to get out. And they were also pressuring me to appear before a grand jury, which means for me to testify about a bunch of things that I probably didn't feel like I, you know, had any right to question me about. I was nervous about that because if you lie unintentionally in a grand jury proceeding, you can potentially like face up to 18 months in, in jail. So I didn't want to get tripped up like that. And I was at least smart enough and was aware that other people have done that, like other Muslims, even if they thought were involved in the September 11th attack. I remember they had questioned them before and they had innocently said something about, oh, did you know one of these uh, suspected terrorists? And somebody would say, uh, for example, no, I've never met him before. And it turns out they might've had a class together and then, and they had and all, you know, unbeknownst to, to you, their name was written in a notebook or something like that. And they're looking at it and say, Oh, boom, you lied to me. Right. But you, they can just trip you up like that. And I was afraid of that because it's happened, you know, many times before. And I was already aware of that even, you know, before I had to, to testify. And this was even reinforced with my conversations with my, uh, my attorneys at the time. So. You've never been to Spain. I read that you didn't even have a valid passport. So when you say to them, look, I've never even been to Spain. How could it be my print? 
What's their answer to that? Well, their answer was that was proof that I must have forged, you know, documents, right, to get to Spain. Like it was like this double negative. So we didn't we didn't have any proof that you, you know, you didn't have a passport. We have no proof that you gone to Spain. So that just proved that you probably must have, you know, doctored it and got there, you know, through like some kind of a, a fake passport. Uh, as far as the whole going to Spain thing, it just goes to show how they can make a mountain out of a molehill if they want to. The only potential evidence they had that I was connected to this bombing was this, this bogus fingerprint match. But other than that, if you look at the affidavit in support of my arrest, other than the fact of the fingerprint, almost every justification they have, and this is true of almost any affidavit, they have to say why, right? Every justification had to do with the fact that I was Muslim, represented Muslim, or associated with Muslim. They were saying the reason for their arrest is I go to the local mosque. I represented Jeffrey Battle, like a you know an accused Muslim terrorist. Uh, my wife is a Egyptian national, aka Muhammad. Every justification was that I was Muslim and I, I knew Muslims and I represented Muslims. Period. That's why that was the that was the only justification other than the fingerprint. That's why they went after me. The circumstantial evidence that they used to build this case to make this mountain out of a molehill, in addition to the Muslim factor, the Muslim bias, was my daughter, uh, Sharia, was taking Spanish classes. And one of their project was to, I think, plan a trip to a Spanish country. And she chose uh, Spain. And so I think she even like had looked up some like a bus, you know, like ways to travel maybe in Madrid. So there was that. They said there was evidence of target practice, which turned out to be my 15-year-old son's chain was looking at uh, like these airsoft pistols. He had some at the time, and he was probably looking to buy some online. So they take this, you know, innocent information, and all of a sudden it sounds very, you know, ominous. And uh, and you can do that with anybody. You know, if you look hard enough, you can find something circumstantially that isn't what it appears to be, but sounds a lot more dangerous than it is. But how did it fall apart? Did it fall apart all of a sudden? Like I said, originally, I thought this was a forgery. You know, after the fact of reviewing the records, probably it wasn't a forgery. Probably my my fingerprint, my left index finger was similar enough to the person who likely actually left that latent. His name is Unani Dayud, an Algerian. It's similar enough that you could with a straight face, say that this could be Brandon's print. It definitely wasn't 100% match. And in fact, when they originally got this print, uh, the FBI, at some point they, they informed the Spanish National Police of their match. And the Spanish National Police, they weren't convinced. Like they asked for a copy, you know, of my print, they looked at it. And they couldn't find this 15 points of comparison that the FBI said that they had found. And when they looked at it, I don't remember the exact number, but I think maybe they couldn't find any more than seven. And usually for there to be a match, and this is a problem in fingerprint forensics, usually there's not even a standard. You know, some could say 10 is a match or 12 is a match, right? And 15 is just like, oh, they just blew it out of the water. You know, that's, that's almost incontrovertible. But, you know, there's no standardization. So Spain, from what I recall, we're only getting seven. And they were saying it's, it's not a match. And the FBI was so adamant about 
pinning it on me and wanting it to be me, that they even went and sent a team to try to convince them otherwise. So was it a mistake or was it a deliberate, "Mm, we got nothing, but we think we can get this guy and basically a setup? Well, there's two different ways you could look at this. The the official explanation is if you go to the inspector general's report, he did a report a couple of years after I was arrested to kind of get to the bottom of how this happened, is that it was a mistake and it was due to confirmation bias. So they got into their heads that my fingerprint was that match. And once they had that, I'm talking about the fingerprint examiners and the forensic, you know, scientists, they couldn't let that go. And so, therefore, the official version, it was, it was just basically a big forensic mistake. So you can go with that one. Or the other explanation is it was a result of Muslim bias, targeting of a Muslim for a specific reason. And that's the one that usually gets lost in, in my case. Like a lo- there's a lot of talk about the forensics, but a lot of times anybody looking at it in the public at large, they lose sight of the fact that it was, there was all this Muslim bias. It's very evident in the affidavit in support of the material witness, you know, arrest warrant, search warrant. And you also have to consider my arrest just came weeks after this Abu Ghraib scandal. When we were getting these pictures of naked bodies, you know, in pyramids and, you know, men with electrodes on their testicles and, you know, dogs. And that was pretty embarrassing for the U.S. It's just like these horrific pictures of torture that were kind of hard to process and hard for the, the U.S. government to explain or justify, because really there's, there's no justification for it. So for me, uh, it seems like if it wasn't intentional, it sure was convenient that, you know, shortly after this, it would be kind of helpful for the U.S. government to have some kind of a white suburban, you know, male lurking in your neighborhood, you know, locked up, right, uh, to kind of divert attention away from from this. Kind of like it'd be a, you know, a way to say, hey, this is a, this is successful. We've got these Muslims, um, Brandon, you know, who are out there and they pose a danger and, you know, let's focus on that. You got an apology? You got, right? And you got restitution. Can you tell me a bit about that and and what, what it meant? Well, I, the apology was important. So even though I was born in Oregon, going up in the Midwest, a handshake, you know, goes a long way and, and an apology. So it's very rare that you get that kind of uh, acknowledgement of making a mistake but that apology, even though it was publicly made, I think it was from somebody from the U.S. Attorney's Office had said that maybe they would do a personal apology to me, like maybe face-to-face. I do remember it was only with the qualification that I admitted that it was not because of any Muslim bias, which that was never going to happen. So, yes, I am happy that there was this public apology. but. Even after my release, there was some kind of a congressional investigation regarding this. And the government still almost continued to assert that 
then instead of saying that the identification was negative, they were saying it was inconclusive. I mean, the Spanish police independent analysis of my friend and their refusal uh, to cave in to the FBI's pressure to wrongfully identify me, it basically helped save me from prosecution and possibly capital punishment convictions that I was facing at the time. I mean, later, even when questioned about this intense pressure, Carlos Corrales, he was the commissioner of the uh, SNP Science Division. He said the FBI called us constantly and kept pressing us. And he was perplexed by the FBI's desire to pin the bombing on me. And like I quote, he said, it seemed as though they had something against him and they wanted to involve us. As my attorney, Steve Wax, put it, but for the unusual circumstances of another national police agency conducting its own independent investigation, Mr. Mayfield would still be incarcerated. And it just makes you wonder, like, how many other people are still sitting in state and federal prisons that have this never come to light because there's no independent agency like the Spanish National Police. That was Brandon Mayfield. He is a former suspect of the 2004 Madrid train bombings. Those bombings killed 191 people and injured around 2,000. The story of Brandon Mayfield was an international embarrassment for the FBI. It also started a period of reckoning in the forensic sciences. Since then, there have been a number of bombshell reports, and you can see those in the show notes. We'll have more on the state of the science, but first, I want you to understand the basics. So here's a basic question. Who decides which forensic scientists get let into court? Of course, it's judges. Judges are asked to judge the scientific rigor of the forensic scientists, but these judges are not necessarily experts. So how do they do it? Judge Nancy Gertner is now a lecturer at Harvard Law School, but she was a United States district judge in Massachusetts. A trial, criminal or civil, is before lay decision makers, between ordinary people. And expert testimony posed challenges for ordinary trials. And scientific experts pose even more challenges for ordinary trials in the sense that someone who comes in as a scientist or a psychiatrist or with scientific expert or a DNA specialist comes in with a specialized credibility, which is why there are special rules and a judge plays a special role. The judge determines relevance. Does this, is this fact that they are testifying about related to the case? But with an expert, the law requires that a judge make additional findings. Uh, essentially, the findings come down to, is this a science that is has uh, the standards of science? And does it apply in this case? The way the law talks about it, is it, is it valid? Does it have a reference to the outside world? And is it reliable? Can it be repeated? Or is it just a one-of? A judge has to determine that it meets that threshold before it can get to the jury. And how uh, scientifically literate and prepared did you feel as a judge to be the gatekeeper for the myriad of types of forensic science um, that I'm sure crossed uh, or, or stood in front of the bench? 
It's interesting. I don't regard myself as a scientist. I am essentially a translator. Um, I teach law and neuroscience at Harvard now. Um, uh, as a trial lawyer, I uh, uh, use psychiatric testimony. I used eyewitness identification experts. And as a judge, I had to deal with that. That doesn't make me a scientist. That makes me someone who knows how to ask the right questions. That's all. And I'm asking questions, translating the science to a lay audience. So I'm a translator in the way that lawyers are translators in lots of fields. And how capable um, do you feel that the average judge is at doing that, at asking the right questions and doing the translating? I'm not going to comment on other judges. I, on the other hand, was fabulous. (laughs) So what are some of the types of forensic science that you faced Well, the most problematic kind of forensic science is what's called trace evidence, where stuff is found at the crime scene and the expert seeks to link what is found at the crime scene to a particular person, a defendant. Um, And in this category are fingerprint testimony and ballistics testimony and uh, bite mark testimony. You're going from the scene of the crime to, is this individual related to the evidence, the person who caused, who created the evidence at the scene of the crime? And with ballistics, it seems very straightforward, but it's actually somewhat complicated. When a bullet goes through a gun, the bullet has certain marks on it. Some of the marks, they're sort of unique marks to particular manufacturers. There are unique marks to the gun. Over time, the gun begins to make unique to that gun, marks on the bullet. And then there are accidental marks that could come from who knows what. And all of this changes over time as a gun is used. I had a witness in a death penalty case, an expert witness. He was actually a police officer who had taken courses in uh, ballistics. And he wanted to testify that the gun found on the defendant matched the bullets that were found on the scene. But he did it without having any records. So he didn't have pictures or records of the kinds of marks that a manufacturer, that a particular gun would make. He didn't have any pictures even of his own analysis of the gun when he first did it, the particular gun. His testimony was completely in his head, which is the antithesis of a scientific approach, where what you do in science you, you try to see if it's replicable by another scientist. And by doing this without records and without reference points, he was, it was completely in his head. And essentially, the testimony was, I am fabulous, believe me. I was very skeptical. I wrote a long decision saying how skeptical I was. The best I would let him do and is to say, you know, this bullet looks like the bullet that came out of this gun, but he could not say it was an actual match. In retrospect, I actually wish I had excluded the testimony. How common is this kind of weak expert testimony and how often does it get through? It's very common because, let me, let me sort of describe this as the pre-DNA era and the post-DNA era, right? Pre-DNA, experts would, in a virtually uncontested, testify about the relationship between stuff found at the crime scene and whatever was found on the defendant. And they would regularly do that. And the standard was very loose. It was, is this generally accepted? 
And what happens over time is it, it gets to be generally accepted in court. That, of course, wasn't shouldn't have been the standard because that's like replicating error <laughs> over and over again. You made a mistake, you know, 30 years ago. You keep on making the mistake because it's precedent. DNA, to a degree, changed that because there were DNA exonerations that then forced people to go back and say, hey, how did this person get convicted in the first place? And so all of a sudden, people began to re-examine evidence that had been uh, taken as, you know, ordinary currency for years and years and years. While there had been a re-examination of trace evidence in the scientific community and in national reports, courts have been very reluctant to go along. Why is that? Why not say we made a mistake or my predecessors made a mistake? Let's reevaluate. Every judge is an individual. In other words, there's no legislation on this. Every judge makes an individual determination. Precedent conveys a considerable amount of weight. And so a judge knows that if he errs on the side of what has been done for 20 years, the odds are he'll be affirmed. Uh, these are criminal cases, oftentimes. Uh, so the consequences of exclusion, judge shouldn't be thinking about it, but oftentimes they do. That puts pressure on a judge. You know, do you take, do you eliminate the only evidence against ex-defendant? Well, the answer is you should if it's problematic, but that is oftentimes hard. Rulings on evidence have a very low threshold of review. In other words, the standard is abuse of discretion, a legal term. But that means essentially that any judge acting in good faith, who's conscientious, who made this decision, that decision will be affirmed. So consider the circumstances, how, how you reverse that is, you know, the judge, <laughs> I like to teach my students to say, you know, the judge had to have been in a coma or intended to, to, to uh, screw the defendant in order to be reversed. It's a very high standard and it's rarely done. So the dynamics of lower courts make them ignore the reexamination and the dynamics of appellate review make them not reverse the lower courts. So bad evidence stays in play. You know, just so I'm sure that th that I understand and the audience understands, the experts are hired by the particular sides, um, and a lot of the forensic experts themselves are, if I have this correct, overwhelmingly serving the prosecution and are p of the police labs. That is a serious structural problem. The funding for prosecution experts outstrips the funding for defense experts. The resource issue is a serious problem. The second problem is what some uh, scholars talk about, confirmation bias. A police lab that knows that they're being brought evidence from the defendant or the suspect is more likely then to determine that that suspect was connected to what was found at the scene. In other words, if I took your fingerprints and I go into a police lab and I say, you know, this is the guy we think who did it, the chances that they will then say, aha, there's a match, are higher. It's confirmation bias. We know who you, the perpetrator is, and therefore we, if there's any judgment involved, we're more likely to say uh, this person's trace evidence matched what was found at the scene. It's just more likely. So there's a confirmation bias, which is very troubling, and a resource bias, which is also troubling. 
You know, you have these landmark reports that say this is a total crisis. Why wouldn't judges accept the fact of the matter that the academics and other experts have been uh, have been warning about for so long? It's a complicated question. I mean, I think there's an appropriate sense about the independence of the judiciary. So sport of scientists can't tell me what to do. I got to make my own decision. Part of it is also that unless the lawyers, the funnel for this, uh, these certifications is the lawyers, unless the lawyers raise it, judge can't do it on their own. I can't investigate my own, the case. Precedent is an enormous impediment. It puts at risk all of the convictions before then. And maybe it should put at risk. Maybe they all should be reexamined. I think they should. But it's very hard for a judge to do that. Ballistic testimony that has been admitted for decades, I suddenly say, is junk science. It puts at risk all of the science before then. Now, again, maybe we should be doing that. We certainly have said it with respect to some fields. Bite mark testimony, for example, was completely discredited. I think that the answer to this is legislation because courts are not policing themselves and the appellate courts are not policing the lower courts. So it has to be legislation. That was Judge Nancy Gertner. She is a former district judge and currently faculty at the Harvard Law School. Forensic scientists are not like academic scientists. They don't usually work in university departments, and they don't usually publish in peer-reviewed journals. The main institutions here are not the academy, they are the criminal justice system, and in particular, police crime labs. In these places, these standards are different sometimes suspect, even non-existent. At least the academic standard of peer-reviewed, replicable, double-blind research, that simply does not apply. For much of the history of forensic science, there has been little to no research documenting and confirming the validity of these methodologies. It's not surprisingly, perhaps, the academics who have pointed this out. They have been the most critical. And I want to call one of them to figure out what exactly is the state of the science today. So I called Gary Edmund. He is a professor in the School of Law at the University of New South Wales, where he directs the program in expertise, evidence, and law. I think because I was always interested in experts and science and technology, that became an area in legal practice that I was particularly interested in, and as well as evidence and proof, that's something that flowed out of that. Um, I've become quite interested in maybe discourse around validation and error and how it is that in law, those sorts of issues, testing and the meaning of testing for the value of, say, a technique or even a field, um, how they have been maybe omitted or not really considered so mainstream scientists tend to kind of focus and possibly too much on testing and kind of uh, definitive tests which kind of prove theories and so forth. Here I'm much more interested in why it is historically that many forms of forensic science actually weren't formally evaluated or that courts were seen as an adequate form of testing the value of the techniques 
that's kind of, I think for most scientists, that would be a remarkable um, revelation because they don't see quartz as doing anything that's remotely like science. And so it's kind of almost a category error. But I think for forensic scientists and quartz, that's what they thought they were doing. Yeah, with, with science, isn't there always supposed to be some modicum of doubt? We speak in terms of like ranges of possibilities and reasonable amount of certainty, but in a courtroom setting, um, you're supposed to like prove beyond a reasonable doubt. So how does how do those those two things seem to be incommensurate in a way? I think one of the problems with many of the forensic sciences, and particularly the traditional forensic sciences that kind of emerged out of police and law enforcement laboratories rather than the mainstream sciences, so I'm talking about things like ballistics and maybe to some extent handwriting and, and fingerprint comparison and blood spatter and shoe prints and tie marks, those sorts of things, the proponents of those techniques tended to actually come into court and rather than talk in probabilistic terms, they tended to make very often categorical claims that this fingerprint belongs to that person. And scientists tend not to talk in those terms. And so what became quite interesting when some of the, um, the scientific forensic sciences emerged, so some of the kind of the assays from chemistry or DNA profiling, is that the people that were presenting this evidence started to talk in probabilistic terms. They started to give likelihood ratios or statistics. And that was interesting because that was empirically predicated. It was based on kind of like studies of how common those things were and that meant that you could evaluate the evidence. The other groups had made these kind of categorical claims in part because they believed the evidence did that, but they actually couldn't present their evidence in probabilistic terms because they'd never done any formal evaluation to tell how common these things were or how infrequent they might occur. So I wanted to get a sense of there's so many different forensic sciences or disciplines, whatever you, you want to call them. Um, and I was hoping to get, a, I guess, a sense of the state of the science. Perhaps we can start at the one that's kind of the most reliable. I think we always have to consider what is the kind of forensic application or what's the application we're using this technology for, because that will always matter. It's, these techniques are always designed to do something. And so basically, if they're, being, if they're doing what they're designed for and we've got evidence, kind of a validation or formal evaluation that suggests they do those, that's going to be really helpful. But they'll have varying degrees of accuracy across that spectrum as well. So, you know, DNA evidence, if it's kind of nuclear DNA and you have a good sample um, these days, it's really robust and we, can, and we can report the evidence in a probabilistic form or statistical form which kind of really accurately captures its value. Um, there may be kind of little complexities around things like um, particular population samples, minorities. Um, it gets more complicated with mixed samples or tiny, tiny traces. And some types of DNA evidence like um, epigenetics where you're trying to say, you know, was this person, did, did the person who left this trace um, have red hair and blue eyes? I mean, some of those might not be where we can actually use them in a kind of productive way at the moment, although maybe we'll get there. So we have to be careful about what it is exactly we're doing. But people are studying those things, and I think we should be careful not to take them to courts or not to rely upon them until they're really demonstrated to be reliable. I think after the kind of chemistry and DNA, if you're going along a continuum, you'd think of things like fingerprints and ballistics because even though I said they hadn't been validated historically, um, there have been quite a few studies on those um, procedures now, 
and they turn out to be really quite good, but they're not as good as they claimed. And some of them still report positive identification, but the evidence suggests that they make small numbers of errors. Some of the leading studies we have, um, you might extrapolate something like one in 500 kind of errors, and maybe some process of review might even eliminate that down to kind of much lower, but that's yet to be demonstrated. The important thing, I think, is to tell people how good they are so that you can understand the kind of limitations and potential errors that might be made when people are making claims. Face identification, this is increasingly important, things like CCTV where you see someone perpetrate a crime and then you want to know is the person in the court the person who did that um, bank robbery, for example, or armed hold-up. Um, We've allowed a lot of people in courts in your country, in my country, to give evidence about this. And these people have, by and large, never been formally tested. So we've just allowed people like anatomists or people that work for the FBI to come in and give this evidence. It's kind of crazy that we haven't actually asked people to show that they can actually do the thing that they're testifying about through some formal process. And then it kind of continues down. And a lot of these might overlap in terms of how good they are. And a lot of it's uncertain. So some of this, if I'm being critical, it may turn out that people are pretty good at some of these skills. And remember, there's lots of different types of skills here, um, like shoe prints and, and tie marks. I mean, the people might be quite good at those things, but the, the important point is to do the formal evaluation and then give evidence that's consistent with the known abilities. Mm. What about bite mark analysis? I think that is seen as these days unreliable. So they were used to think to do things like um, you'd find on a dead body or on a child bruising or a bite mark or even cuts associated with teeth. Dentists, forensic odontologists would come into court and say that based on the dentition of the accused or the accused dental records, that it was their opinion that they bit this person. When they were actually formally studied, one of the studies revealed that they had a great deal of trouble even ascertaining whether a mark on skin on a body was a bite. That means that what follows then, whether something actually matches, is increasingly difficult. If you can't determine whether something's a bite, it doesn't really matter whether you claim you can match it or not because it's, it's over. Some of the mainstream scientific organisations that reviewed um, a range of procedures, and I think the the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, their 2016 report, they reviewed a number of uh, forensic procedures and they said that it shouldn't be admitted into courts, US federal courts anymore, and that no more money should be spent on it. That was Gary Edmund. Professor in the School of Law at the University of New South Wales. He is also director of the program in Expertise, Evidence, and Law. This episode is like the darts and letters version of true crime. But to be honest with you, I don't watch or listen to much true crime. But, you know, it is like the most popular genre of podcasting, so I guess I should probably ask the question, how does true crime deal with forensic science? 
Kevin Flynn is an expert in true crime. Actually, I think it's fair to call him a real intellectual. He is the author of five true crime books and co-host of the popular podcast Crime Writers On. This is a review show. It's like the New York Review of Books for murder podcasts. I started by asking Kevin how he first got into the genre. I liked the Law & Order show. I mean, so much so today I have a podcast that we, where we look at Law and & Order and SVU and we kind of rip on all the plot holes and uh, how inconceivable some of the, uh, the legal interpretations are <laughs> for dramatic effects. But uh, as far as, you know, getting into the true crime space, I certainly didn't get into it until I was a journalist. I fell into a couple of really great crime cases, and that's how I became a true crime author. And the rest is history. You know, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I, I'm not as familiar with the space anymore, but I sense there's like kind of a, a, a true crime highbrow kind of a renaissance. Maybe, maybe starting with Serial, is that kind of a landmark here? Yeah, I definitely think Serial is, um, you know, sort of the watershed moment in podcasting. It made it mainstream, but it also brought true crime as a genre into the mainstream. I can tell you as having been a true crime author for, you know, about 10 years before it, you know, the books are sold almost exclusively in paperback and they're farther in the back of the bookstore beyond the, the romances. You know, it doesn't get a lot of respect. And then with something like Serial that comes along, uh, people get into it and now they want more true crime. And the true crime podcast genre is kind of divided into two halves and you have one half, which is the weekly talk show where you have a lot of, you know, amateurs and armchair detectives, you know, drinking alcohol and talking about their favorite, their favorite serial killer or <laughs> crime. And it's done sometimes, you know, really thoughtfully or done for laughs. And there's that, but there's also the other half which are the uh, professional investigations. They're often done by reputable journalistic outlets. Uh, it could be the CBC or NBC or something like uh, Gimlet Media. They're limited series. They're looking at perhaps a particular case or an issue within the criminal justice system, and they go sort of two different ways. So there, you know, there's crossover people like, like both, but when it comes to true crime, I think a lot of people, when they think of true crime podcasts, if they're not thinking of serial, they're thinking of my favorite murder or they're thinking of a more, you know, a different kind of talk show where they're just kind of they're not doing any reporting. Yeah. Very few of the people who are talking have any firsthand knowledge of the crime, have done any sort of, you know, actual reporting on it. But, you know, they're giving their interpretation and the appeal of the show is to hear these people talk about it. How popular, I mean, obviously, Serial was the, I think, maybe still the greatest downloaded podcast, not just for the genre of true crime, but for podcasting in general. But yeah. going beyond that, like, how popular is true crime, whichever of these camps you want to talk about, or, or both in the podcasting space? Are we talking about, you know, a huge contingent? Oh, yeah. I think that, uh, you know, if you look at the Apple podcast chart for the U.S., Either uh, number one or number two every week is Crime Junkie, uh, Crime Junkie with uh, Ashley Flowers, who, again, was, you know, not somebody from the journalism space, but somebody who was, you know, 
by your own admission, a big fan and just was uh, such a fan of the different true crime podcast. She started her own and it's incredibly successful. Uh, My favorite murder, which is, you know, also sort of in that, uh, you know, weekly talk genre is also huge. So, yeah, it's a big, big part uh, of the podcast sphere. Yeah, what is it about us that that draws us to these really lurid and uh, disturbing tales? And like, what do you think we get out of it? Well, I mean, it's the oldest story in the Bible, you know, Cain and Abel is a crime story, right? And so man's inhumanity to man has been the dominant theme in literature since, you know, we've been putting ink to paper. One of the reasons we like horror is because we get to go right to the edge and see something bad, but we're safe, right? So that's why we enjoy it. Nothing bad is going to happen, but we get the thrill. I think it's the same with true crime. Moving on to to really the focus, we're making a series of episodes where we're going to look at the state of forensic science and Mm -hmm. the way that expertise is mobilized in the courtroom. But I thought it would be nice to start here. How is it actually mobilized and portrayed in the uh, true crime genre? Well, I think, you know, if you go back about 25 years when CBS premiered CSI, it created a, what they literally called the CSI effect in the uh, the justice system where prosecutors were finding that jurors wanted to see the DNA for burglaries and bank robberies and other things where they wouldn't typically use DNA because they had been trained because of what they saw on television was that forensic science is involved in everything and it is definitive. And so it's binary. It's yes or no is this guy. It's been a challenge uh, to this day for prosecutors to tell their story to jurors if it doesn't have a DNA uh, connection. And sometimes, as you may know, like the DNA can be inconclusive because the sample is too small. They can't say this is one in one billion people that left this blood drop. You can say, well, we can't exclude this person, but we can't say it's not, you know, it's not them, but we can't say it's not them. And, you know, if it has that gray area, it's still problematic for a prosecutor. Today, when we're starting to look at where we are in society thinking about criminal justice reform and police misconduct and the way that the system sometimes fails, well, I think that now this audience knows a lot about what can go wrong and are not as worshipful of the findings of technicians uh, who, you know, are looking at things like fingerprints, ballistics, uh, shoe prints, pattern science, right? These are not a yes-no thing. It's not like you take something out of a test tube and, yes, this is, means it's this bullet. You've got people who are technicians who are examining patterns, and it's an informed opinion, but it's not yes or no. And so I think that people are aware of that. And while we have, you know, given, a, you know, for 100 plus years, given a lot of credence to fingerprints, we're starting to learn, hey, wait a minute, they say this is a match because it matches in eight different places. But, you know, really in this court, it needs to match in 12 different places. And why can you only find it in four different places, but say it's, you know, it's it, there, there, there has been a point where 
forensic science has been seen as magic. And the more we start to understand the science behind it, the more realistic it, you know, we, we find its limitations and we can have faith in, in different parts of it. Certainly, I think, you know, in the field, there are questions about the veracity of all different kinds of forensics and forensic conclusions. The public has not really been aware of that, and they're becoming aware of it now. It's encouraging to hear that, that there's there's more questions being asked within within the genre. To the extent that you can generalize, how is it portrayed? Are we talking about a few kind of special cases where people have taken a critical eye, or, or, or do you find that most podcasts still kind of have that certainty, yes, no binary, or what would you say? I, I think it, it certainly depends on the story that everyone is telling if this were before serial you know it definitely would be a story about how the cops got the right guy and the different ways that they were able to identify that usually has to do with something found at an autopsy or you know some other sort of forensic thing and that's what you see on law and order and csi and all the different cop shows is that that's an element of every story so now after serial what has happened is that in the true crime genre, the pendulum has swung the other way. These used to be stories about the bad guy getting caught and getting his comeuppance. And now the, the pendulum is all the way to the other way with the stories people want to hear about are ones where they got the wrong guy and the system doesn't work. And how do we fix that? And that's what the story of Serial was with Adnan Syed. And people wanted more of those stories. So, you know, they're getting a little more, uh, you know, used to the idea that the system is imperfect and they want to see more of that. So the pendulum is swinging to the more critical. I mean, that sounds to me like a good thing, I would think. Yeah. And, you know, like in the United States with Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter, that there continues to be the, this divide among the public along how to view the work of the police. And so if you are of the half of the country that believes the police can do no wrong and you wind up on a jury, you're probably going to believe everything that the prosecution has to tell you, whether you support Black Lives Matter or you're just a little more suspicious of things because you've been uh, you know, looking at modern true crime. You know, you're going to start to think a little deeper about what's happening. What about you? Uh, you know, you're a true crime writer. How have you dealt with forensic science? You know, when you you do true crime, you tell the story of, you know, where it goes. Uh, I've always been fortunate where I never had to deal with an editor who would say, you know, the story is really great, but he really should have a, an evil twin brother. You know, you, you, you do with the facts as they are. And so if in the crime, forensics plays a big part, you know, then that's what it is. And if it doesn't, then, you know, it's not part of the, the case. I would say that if I were to write again, that I might provide a little additional context for the places where the forensic evidence is presented. I've had two cases where an expert took bits of bone that had been burned and reassembled uh, a skeleton, you know, like this horribly morbid jigsaw puzzle. You know, I, th I think that I, I might, again, instead of just portraying it as a uh, miracle and wonder, you know, also talk 
a little bit, or at least put it in its place as far as, you know, what this is. This is an opinion of an informed professional, but it's their analysis and it's more art than science. So what's changed your understanding and like relationship to that forensics? Yeah, I mean, the forensics may not be wrong, but I think it just having in the past couple of years on our our show, having reviewed uh, about 500 different podcasts or documentaries, you know, just to see the prevalence of where where it was fallible has really turned me around on the idea that, you know, just because someone says, oh, there was a fingerprint on the gun that belonged to this guy doesn't automatically make me believe that it's actually his fingerprint because of the imprecise nature of fingerprinting and ballistics and whatnot. So I just think that, you know, it has been so much in the the popular culture to sort of refute what the, the government says is a piece of evidence. And we see time and time again when they got it wrong, then, yeah, you know, then I'm, well, you know maybe that's not exactly what, uh, you know, what, what they're saying it is. Do you think that the audience has grown, like, for back from the, uh, you know, CSI days and the CSI effect, which is so well-documented? Is the general public and, and the, the jurors, uh, are they starting to ask these same kind of questions about forensic science? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not certain, uh, just not having been privy to a lot of jury discussion, mm-hmm. uh, but it certainly seems that way in the, in the press and on social media that when people are looking at crimes from afar, they still want to see the forensics, but they are also, half of them are more suspicious of it, and that's why they want to see it. It's the same way that they learned about the forensics in the first place through, you know, TV dramas and the idea of, you know, how great DNA is. So the way it's portrayed in the media ends up having a a great amount of the way it, it, it influences the way people perceive it and then how they perceive it in real life. What do you get in terms of the systemic critique from true crime uh, versus, you know, we're, we're a slightly academic show, so I, I figure a lot of students and scholars are listening and they may think, you know what, I don't need your true crime stuff, Kevin. I can I can read this law review article or this um, kind of systemic analysis that I saw in the New Yorker Review of Books that just tells me what is and isn't wrong with the, uh, with the criminal justice system. So where does true crime kind of um, contribute to that? Well, I mean, if that's what somebody says, then it's not for you. It's not for you. It's not made for you then. And that's fine. You can go on and, and, and read those, you know, law reviews. It's the same reason why when you get a, uh, a, an email from a Nigerian prince who <laughs> wants to sell you, you know, who wants you to like, uh, you know, wants to give you his fortune. It's not for you. The Nigerian prince does not actually expect you to respond He's waiting for the sucker to respond, right? <laughs> if you don't like true crime, then it's not for you. That's f- and that's fine. There's a lot of people who do like it. And, you know, if it's going to be respected, it needs to be done in a way that's respectful and worthy of mainstream acceptance. Uh, but it still might not be everybody's cup of tea, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I'm glad I'm glad you're you're doing the work. You're doing the reviewing and kind of holding people to these uh, to these high ethical standards. So well, they're I, frightened I, of me. They're, <laughs> really? They're frightened. They're quaking in their boots. No, of course not. No, <laughs> okay. no, no, no. Gosh. Uh, but I do think we need we need to take it seriously because, like you say, obviously, um, when you have basically the biggest podcast genre, you can How could you possibly ignore it? Because this is how the average person understands something like you know, the criminal justice system or forensic science or just anything really. It's it's not yeah. it's not through law review articles. So people are working their stuff out, right? And so this is a way uh, of you know listening to stories about bad things happening to other people and wondering, A, uh, that's never going to happen to me, or B, I'm just as special that you know maybe a serial killer wants to get me too. So <laughs> I'm going to make my escape plan now because I'm that special. Some people like it for the, uh, you know, the straight journalism and the discussion about man's inhumanity to man. And some people just think that, you know, they're one rude encounter away from being on a milk carton. That was Kevin Flynn, true crime writer and co-host of the Crime Writers On podcast. They build themselves the original true crime review podcast because, as they say, friends don't let friends listen to bad true crime. Check them out. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jay Coburn, and our assistant producer this week was Polly Legere. Our chase producer is Mark Apollonio. Our lead research assistant on this episode was Roland Nadler. We also had academic advising from Professor Emma Cunliffe. Nadler and Cunliffe are both at the Peter A. Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia. As always, our research coordinator is David Mosscrop. Our theme song is composed by Mike Barber. Our graphic designer is Dakota Coop, and I am your host, Gordon Caddick. Send us your feedback by emailing the show. The address is dartsandletterspod at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at dartsandletters. All this information is in the show notes. This is a production of Cited Media, and our programming is supported by academic research grants. In particular, this is part of a mini-series on the state of forensic science. It is supported by funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, and the scholarly lead on that project is Professor Emma Cunliffe. We are also supported by our patrons. You can join them and join us by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. <laughs> <laughs>